It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a high-stakes case over the strictest abortion law in the country, the Texas law that has stopped most abortions in the state. A key focus was on the unusual provision Texas included that makes the law enforceable only through private lawsuits in order to keep federal courts from getting involved in blocking it. Four of the justices, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and the Chief Justice, John Roberts, had already voted to pause the law before it went into effect. And Justice Kagan was the most vocal critic of the law, arguing that its purpose was to get around the court's earlier rulings about who can be sued to enforce constitutional rights. And essentially, we would be like, you know, we're open for, you're open for business. There's, there's a... There's, there's nothing the Supreme Court can do about it. Guns, same-sex marriage, religious rights, whatever you don't like, go ahead. And it came as a bit of a surprise when Justice Brett Kavanaugh signaled he agreed with Kagan. Are you saying, absent that, uh, that Second Amendment rights, free exercise of religion rights, free speech rights could be targeted uh, by other states in this, using the ex parte young uh, language on 163, and and to really uh, infringe those and to put huge penalties to the Chief Justice's hypothetical, say, everyone who sells an AR-15 is liable for a million dollars to any citizen. My guest is Leah Littman, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan Law School. Tell us about what you saw as some of the major concerns that the justices voiced. So their concerns they had for both sides on The plaintiff's side, they were concerned about the prospect that plaintiffs could sue judges and clerks. In one moment, the chief justice said to the advocates, you know, you might understand our hesitation about allowing people to sue judges. You know, they are judges themselves, and that's just not kind of the ordinary course of this litigation. On the other side, to Texas, Several justices indicated a real discomfort with the prospect that states could nullify disfavored constitutional rights and essentially undermine the Supreme Court's authority to decide whether state laws are constitutional. Justice Kagan 
argued that Texas was making an end run around the Supreme Court precedent, and it would be inviting other states to try to flout other precedent. Justice Kavanaugh talked about a loophole that's being exploited here. So did he seem to suggest that the court should close up the loophole? So I don't think it is a loophole for the court to close up so much as a structured state law that no court has ever really confronted, or at least the Supreme Court has not. That is, no state, as Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger said, has ever done what Texas has tried to do, namely to box out the federal judiciary entirely from enforcing its decisions, recognizing a constitutional right. And so the loophole that Texas exploited was just the general rule in the Supreme Court's decisions that you ordinarily sue state executive officials who have some connection to the enforcement of a law. And what Texas did is it tried to remove all state executive officials from the enforcement of this law and therefore remove any possible defendants that the plaintiffs could sue in order to prevent this law from being in effect. It seemed like Justice Gorsuch was pushing back on that and kept asking, you know, have you ever done this before? Has there ever been a suit like this before? Has there ever been an injunction like this before? Does it seem as if some of the conservative justices were looking for ways to validate that? Yes, I think that concern just doesn't account for the fact that no state has ever tried to entirely box out the Supreme Court from enforcing a constitutional right that the Supreme Court has recognized and that the Supreme Court, at least in the here and now, has said continues to exist. And so the other justices just didn't seem bothered by the fact that there hasn't been a similar kind of lawsuit to this one. Chief Justice Rock, I think Justice Elena Kagan and Samuel Alito referred to this, but Chief Justice Roberts said that the authority the U.S. was claiming in bringing its lawsuit was a limitless, ill-defined authority. So they were questioning whether the ruling, if there was a ruling in favor of the Justice Department, could it be limited appropriately? Yes. So one question was, when, if ever, should the United States be allowed to sue a state under circumstances like this one, Um, given that a premise of the United States lawsuit was that Texas had attempted to insulate its law from constitutional challenge in the federal courts. Their questions were, well, what other kinds of laws that might be insulated from challenges in federal courts could the United States also sue? Did it seem as if, at least at the beginning of the argument, that Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she was making an argument that this law would not allow abortion providers to make a full defense in state court if they get sued. So there was this, some of the justices saying that state court could take care of this? Yes. So part of her point was responding to a question from Justice Alito, which is, why isn't it sufficient that if abortion providers are sued, they could just say this law is unconstitutional? and air the constitutional arguments in that way. And Justice Barrett's point was that wouldn't actually solve the constitutional problem, given that Texas has limited the provider's ability to assert the constitutional defense in these SB8 lawsuits. And also, Texas has made it so these providers can just be sued again and again and again. And so, 
merely succeeding in one lawsuit isn't going to solve the problem, which of which is you could possibly be sued in future cases. Did it seem to you as if on the conservative side, Justice Alito and perhaps on the liberal side, Justice Kagan, they were both trying to make out and clarify the arguments for the conservative side in Alito's case and for the liberal side in Kagan's case? I think that some of Justice Kagan's questions were definitely designed to do that. So she wanted to know from the Solicitor General under what circumstances the United States could bring suit. She also wanted to know what the Solicitor General thought should happen with the United States lawsuit if the Supreme Court allowed the provider's lawsuit to um, continue and air the constitutional arguments against SB 8. I don't think Justice Alito was trying to do the same. That is, I think his questions were much more designed to advocate for a particular position than to clarify the position. And to advocate for the position in favor of the law. Yes. There was a brief in support of abortion clinics that was filed by Second Amendment advocates. Justice Kavanaugh questioned Texas over the prospect that they could use this kind of law against other things, including gun rights. I think the fact that plaintiffs in lawsuits for more favored constitutional rights argue that the Texas scheme should not be able to foreclose judicial review helps the justices to see that this Texas scheme isn't about or limited to abortion. Instead, the justices wanted to know whether states could use the scheme to undermine religious rights, whether states could use the scheme to undermine gun rights, whether states could use the scheme to undermine contraception, whether states could use the scheme to undermine numerous other constitutional rights. And that question was definitely indicating that concern. Lurking in the background is Roe v. Wade. And did it seem as if any of the justices sort of acknowledged that it was a constitutional right that's in jeopardy? So Justice Alito was most explicit in acknowledging that Roe and Casey are in jeopardy. So he asked whether the provider's decision not to perform abortion was not due to SBA, but was instead due to the fact that the Supreme Court was reconsidering Roe and Casey in a case this term, the challenge to the Mississippi statute restricting abortions more than 15 weeks after a person's last period. Justice Gorsuch, I think, was the one who said, you know, you're seeking an injunction against the world. I think that was actually the Chief Justice. Okay. So what about that? Who, who would be enjoined here? Well, I think the question was about who exactly this injunction extended to. Did it extend to every private individual who might bring a lawsuit under SBA? The Solicitor General clarified that their position is that the injunction extended to state court judges, state court clerks, as well as any individual who actually brought a lawsuit. So they were not seeking an injunction against the world. Um, But I think you're right that the uncertainty about who exactly this injunction should apply to all is because of the novelty of this law. It makes it no longer possible to sue the ordinary state officials who plaintiffs typically sue in these cases. They could rule in favor of the abortion providers or in favor of the federal government or any which way on combinations of those. Did you think that one suit held up better than the other? 
Um, I think it is possible that the provider's lawsuit is more likely to proceed. Just the justices seem to be more sympathetic to the arguments from the providers and view that case as a more straightforward extension of existing cases than the lawsuit by the United States. What do you think about the new way these oral arguments are going, which seem to go on and on and on? <laughs> to me, it's not as in much of a hot bench as it used to be. The justices are certainly interrupting each other less and interrupting the advocates less. I think that is partially just a product of the fact that they got off a year in which they were just questioning people seriata, that is not asking questions at the same time. It's possible that we will revert more back to the previous format um, as additional time passes, but I do think this is a, a, a new norm. The last time a case was heard this quickly was Bush v. Gore and the decision came down the next day. Are we expecting a fast decision here as well? I am certainly hoping, and I would assume the plaintiffs are hoping for a decision quickly because every day that passes, you know, this law is in effect. Providers cannot provide abortion care to individuals. So I think people are hoping that the Supreme Court will act quickly, but no one knows. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leah. That's Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A federal jury has decided that a private prison operator must pay more than $17 million to immigration detainees who were paid $1 a day to perform tasks such as cooking and cleaning at the company's for-profit detention center in Washington State. The jury also determined that GEO Group must pay its detainee workforce minimum wage. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, have you ever heard of a verdict on similar grounds? 
No, in fact, that was a first-of-its-kind litigation. That's still a legal issue that I think you're going to expect to see go all the way up to the Supreme Court because it's a bit complicated. There is a federal appropriations law from the 1970s that says that individuals in immigration detention should be given $1 a day to engage in voluntary work. And then there was this Washington lawsuit that talked about, well, that's still violating a bunch of different laws, including in this case, the one that prevailed was the state minimum wage laws. And so you ended up getting this big verdict that the work violated the state minimum wage laws. And so I do think this case isn't going to end without it getting to the Supreme Court because it does implicate a lot of other federal versus state interests in terms of, well, why can't federal prisoners also be given this option of, of, of getting minimum wage under state law? And so the complication is, well, this has sort of been done that way because the contractor is operating the facility, but contractors operate all kinds of facilities. And so it, it is a fascinating legal issue. It's right there in the interstices of is it right? Is it wrong? I mean, there's just a lot of interesting debate about it. And so while I do think this verdict is very substantial and it definitely sends a major message, it's not, I don't think, the last word. I think there's still a lot of litigation to go. They might prevail in the Ninth Circuit. But then the question is, they get to the Supreme Court. What would the Supreme Court do there? And it sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But Per person, it doesn't come out to be that much because there, I think, are 10,000 people in the class. Yeah, well, I think here's the issue. It's not a lot of money per person. That's correct. But it is prohibitive from the standpoint of what happens if people at these facilities, if the operators of the facilities are forced to pay actual minimum wage to the individuals who are doing, because the idea of the voluntary work is that it, it prevents sort of idle time in the facility. It's not that the contractors actually need the people in the facilities to do the work. They don't. But it's, the idea is you get people working at something that they're doing, and so they're not idle in the facilities. And so the question is, if, if you have to pay for that voluntary work, what's going to happen is the contractors are just not going to provide it, and they're going to just give it to other workers instead, not to the not to the people in the detention facilities. And so it will have a couple of effects. Number one, it will it will move the work out. So yes, it might increase some some jobs to people who aren't in the facilities, but it will also create this idleness in the facility, which is what was this was trying to avoid in the first place. But it certainly it won't moving forward allow people in these contract facilities to get paid minimum wage to do work at the facility. That, that's not going to be the response to this if this actually ends up being what happens moving forward. Let's talk about remain in Mexico, because this is a policy that the Biden administration didn't want to continue. And the Department of Homeland Security issued a new memo terminating it. Where does that stand? Well, here is where it stands. On October 29th, the Biden administration has said, we know that there's a court injunction that forces us to continue this remain in Mexico policy, but we are going to nevertheless try to provide another justification that will convince the court to get rid of its injunction 
so that we actually can terminate the Remain in Mexico slash migrant protection protocol policy. And so they actually, I mean, you read this thing, it's incredibly in-depth. It's 39 pages long, and it goes through all of the different justifications of why the Biden administration thinks the Remain in Mexico policy won't work. And it goes through access to counsel problems and notice of hearing problems that people are unsafe at the facilities where they are in Mexico, that the U.S. government really can't do anything to create safe facilities in Mexico because we don't have jurisdiction to police these facilities in Mexico and to keep people safe. It is, of course, a a sovereign country. The fact that people miss their hearings, the fact that it causes people to keep reentering over and over again because they want to see if they can get themselves out from under this remain in Mexico policy, and the fact that it would require huge investment in Mexico in order for Mexico to continue to allow this, which was not the case during the Trump administration. So, Leon, who will decide whether or not the administration's memo can go into effect? The question is, in the end, is the Northern District of Texas going to agree that this meets the standard for not being an arbitrary and capricious revocation of the Remain in Mexico policy and finally allow the Biden administration to remove the policy? Or will they say, nope, this is yet again arbitrary and capricious because there is no justification you can give us for removing this policy? This policy from a purely immigration enforcement perspective makes sense to us and that what you should do is either detain every single person who comes to America while their proceedings are pending. And if you can't detain them, have them wait in Mexico. But no one should be allowed to just walk in and be free within the United States while their court case is pending because there's too much of a likelihood that they won't show up to court. That's what the judge said last time. And so I don't know if the judge is going to be convinced by even this 39-page justification that anything should change from that basic view of the world that the judge had. That why would you get rid of this policy? You know, there's just the, 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 the no matter what you think about humanitarian concerns, those, those are of little concern to me as a judge because I'm looking at this purely from an immigration enforcement angle. So I don't know if the original district court judge will change, but the question is will the Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court change and say, look, even if the immigration enforcement argument isn't great, all of these other things about the humanitarian costs and the resources and other things are sufficient for an administration to change a policy. Otherwise, an administration will never be able to change any policy, no matter what, because as long as one judge thinks it doesn't make any sense, that will be the end of it. And so that will be a very interesting debate to see moving forward. What strikes me is this is a policy put in place by the Trump administration. So it should be a policy that after an election, the Biden administration can change. I mean, can the courts force administrations to retain old policies that they don't believe in? Right. I mean, this is what we're going to see. We saw this in DACA, to be fair where the Trump administration tried to get rid of DACA and Justice Roberts was the deciding vote saying, look, the way you tried to get rid of DACA was arbitrary and capricious. Try again. And then we never got to litigate the second round of that. Trump was uh, voted out of office. 
and now we're litigating whether DACA is legal or not. That's a whole separate issue, but that, that'll be an issue that will work its way up to the Supreme Court. But now on the flip side, we're seeing this, which is Trump's version of DACA was the remain in Mexico policy. And so the question is, will there be five justices of the Supreme Court who say, hey, just like DACA, guess what? We don't think there's any way that you can terminate this remain in Mexico policy that isn't arbitrary and capricious because we're looking at this purely from the immigration enforcement angle. And why would you allow any human being to be able to just walk into the United States? And that's what you're essentially doing if you don't have this remain in Mexico policy. And so that's the perspective. If you're looking at it from that pure perspective of that, then there's no justification that's going to overcome that. If you're viewing it from, well, but in Mexico, people are getting beaten, they're getting abused, there's no way to secure the facilities, they're not getting counsel to show up for the hearing, so everybody's losing their case, people don't even know where their hearing is, so you can't even get them to, you know, there's tons of justifications that they've given that are all very powerful, but none of those have anything to do with ending illegal immigration, so to speak, and so that's the question is, will any of these other sort of human, human first or humanitarian justifications be sufficient to overcome the, the pure immigration enforcement reason why this was allowed to remain in the first place? But there are a couple of differences between DACA and remain in Mexico. One, the reliance interest that the dreamers have had for years on the policy, but also, are the courts going to tell Mexico what to do? And so suppose Mexico oh, says, no, no, we won't. Absolutely. I mean, those are two huge differences, as you point out. One, the reliance interest in DACA was something Justice Roberts specifically cited as one of his reasons for saying this was an arbitrary and capricious withdrawal of DACA. And there isn't necessarily a reliance interest here, although maybe the state of Texas would say, well, we were not being uh, faced with so many people coming in without status. Now we are. And so now, you know, we have to change our budgetary plans or whatever. That's not going to be the same kind of reliance interest as DACA. And so you make an excellent point there. And then from the from the standpoint of the Mexican government, in the end, you're not going to be able to hold the Mexican government in contempt. So the question is, are is our courts really prepared to hold the DHS secretary and other DHS officials in contempt of court if they can't force people from other countries, not Mexicans? These are people from Central America or Haiti or Ecuador or other places to go back into Mexico above Mexico's objective. Are courts really going to intervene in foreign policy in a way they were, they, you know, for 200 years have said they can't do and won't do uh, in this one instance? And that's really going to be the question. Is it at the district court again or is it up at the Fifth Circuit? So there's two parts of this litigation. So the first one on the injunction phase is finished, and now they're going on the merits phase in the Fifth Circuit now, trying to say on the merits, this first termination of the migration protection protocol should be taken away. That litigation continues. Now there's memo two and memo two. So memo one litigation on the temporary injunction stuff has been upheld, and memo one has been stricken and, and, and remain in Mexico stays in place. 
but they're doing the full merits briefing now in the Fifth Circuit in that case. Now, in the second issue, Memo 2, will, Memo 2 has to start again with the Northern District of Texas court and work its way up again all the way up to the Supreme Court. So there's both phases of litigation, litigating Memo 1, litigating Memo 2. To another immigration story, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration is looking to settle with the immigrant families who were separated from their children during the Trump administration. The administration is reportedly considering paying as much as $450,000 per person. That seems like a lot of money. Yeah, I think here. So let's start with this. Let's start with obviously any person who's reading this in a newspaper article is extremely confused. What are we doing here? Should people be getting money for having come across the United States border without lawful status? Because in the end, the argument goes, if somebody's drunk driving and they have a child in their car, they don't keep the parent who's drunk driving and the child together. They put the parent in jail and they put the uh, child in, in protective services. So why can't you do the same thing here? So that's that argument. And certainly the Biden administration could, if it chooses to, litigate this in court all the way through. Now, here's the thing. You have many, many families going through this situation, and they're all in separate cases. And so all you would need is one big verdict in one of the courts in order for potentially not be able to settle these cases globally because you got one big verdict, and that encourages other of, of these groups to go forward. The question is, well, will the Supreme Court actually allow this kind of claim to move forward? And why shouldn't they at least try that? And that's a legitimate argument. But I mean, you do have a lot of fact-based claims here about the government knowingly, I mean, you've had watchdogs say this, knowingly put forth these policies, knowing that there isn't going to be a way to keep track of the children who were separated from the parents, and that there would be this massive harm that would take place. They were warned about all of this by people like Jonathan White from HHS, who was the person in charge at the time of the uh, resettlement of children. And he had said, I don't want to go along with this because it's going to cause all of this trauma. We won't be able to keep track of the kids. And so once you move forward with that, it's maybe not something that even the Supreme Court can overturn as a factual basis because the government isn't allowed to endanger children knowingly, regardless of what the reason is, whatever your law enforcement reason is, you still can't knowingly endanger children. And if uh, if a factual finding is made that that's what happened in this case, then the only issue will be about damages, but it won't be a legal issue anymore. But that's the legal issue. And that's a separate issue about whether politically it is wise to engage in these settlements, because, of course, you have massive political blowback from the simplistic argument that why would anyone pay people here without status for just enforcing the law? And so, man, that's an issue nobody wants to be in the middle of. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. 
And don't forget to catch the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.